Hello, I'm Maryam. And I'm Momina. We have been friends since the seventh grade. And over the last 16 years, we have shared a mutual love of Harry Potter and a general apathy towards Stephen Moffat. But like all things, our obsessions have changed. Momina is into fantasy novels, video games, and songs that make her miserable. Mariam has a love for pop music, fitness, and mindless internet content. In this podcast, we'll do a deep dive on something our friend loves. Maybe we'll end up loving it too. Welcome, Welcome to my, my friend's secret, secret obsession. All right, are we live? We are live. Finally, we got this shit going. <laughs> have we though? It feels like a lot of technical stuff that we have to deal with before we can get to actually just talk to one another. I mean, this is what happens when you've got like tech newbies trying to do a podcast. I mean, we still haven't figured out our audio shit, but you know what? <laughs> we're still not taking the time to figure it out. We just we're just we get so excited <laughs> and carried away with our topics. <laughs> That's true. I feel like we just want to talk and talk and um, not just publish our stuff. And so all our stuff is getting stale. I think we <laughs> talked about Mulan like three episodes ago now. Not a good look. <laughs> not a good look. And we've also like uh-uh. celebrated a birthday. We've talked about like Black Panther on the day that it happened. That's true. What else have we done that's a little bit dated now? I'm not sure. Everything. I feel like I want to bring up something today that's going to be super dated because even today it's like at least like three months old. But can I talk about it? Because it is my favorite obsession these days. Oh man, of course. Go ahead. You know about this. But it's Brown Skin Girl by Beyonce. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It is so beautiful. Beautiful. I am so proud of this Beyonce. Like, I do not recognize the old Beyonce. I'm sure she was good in her own right. But man, this Beyonce, like, does things to me. She speaks to me. She speaks to my community. And I don't know. I'm just, like, so proud of her in a weird way. I... Cannot get over that moment between Kelly Rowland and Beyonce. I'm like dying. Oh, it's so cute. It's so sweet and seems so genuine. I love them. It seems genuine. Absolutely genuine. Yeah. So this is Brown Skin Girl. The um, It's a song from Beyonce from the Lion King soundtrack, which didn't give, gain a lot of traction for some weird reason. I think this song clearly is like the best and strongest on the record. But I think because the movie didn't do super well. I'm sure it did well because it's Disney, but it was sort of banned critically. So I think the song kind of, uh, you know, got lost somewhere um, in in the ether. But I really think it deserves a lot of recognition. And Kelly Rowland's in it, Lupita Nyong'o is in it, um, Naomi Campbell, all these like powerful black women. And I really like how she's not sort of exclusionary. So she, you know, she has a black albino woman. She has, you know, an Indian woman. So all brown skinned girls. And I don't know, man, it, it makes me really emotional even just talking about it. Also, the fact that Beyonce has always been criticized for not being black enough, you know, because mm-hmm. people people always make fun of the fact that she's basically a white girl, which I, you know, I disagree with. Yes, she's lighter skinned, but then that doesn't take away from her blackness. But then again, I, as a brown girl, probably don't have the authority on that. Yeah, but I think we do struggle with maybe, well, we do struggle with racism abroad, but we also struggle with colorism a lot in our society. And I'm like a lighter skinned brown girl. And I feel like, you know, with just the way my sister and I were treated um, as children with her being darker than me, I completely understand sort of that aspect of it. Mm. 
And I, as like a darker skinned brown girl, have obviously been on the other side of the spectrum. Like, I basically wouldn't be able to say what the other side looks like because, you know, I can only speak from my experience. But tell me something yeah. that your sister talks about as like a darker skinned girl, which between the two of you, maybe? Yeah, she's like two shades darker than me, which apparently makes her like the darker skinned person in our family because we're like all super fair skinned. Um, but she isn't. And and I remember even when we were kids, you know, her people always sort of comparing me favorably to her. Um, and I don't, re- it makes you feel very guilty because, you know, I think she is a lot prettier than me, a lot smarter than me and all the rest of that crap. But it's just such a weird place to be put in just because of something. I feel the same when because I'm 5'10 and people sort of compliment my height a lot. And I don't know what to do with that information because I didn't work hard for it. I would rather be, you know, applauded for my like accomplishments or like whatever, something that I actually worked hard to get. But it's just um, a very strange thing. And she doesn't talk about it a lot, but it's something certainly that I have noticed um, growing up. And so certainly she must have noticed that as well. But it's just a very strange sort of us versus them mentality that people put you in. For us, of course, it is, you know, a remnant of colonialism, but also of like the Mughal Empire where all the, you know, people in power were a lot fairer because they just came from that stock. And it's just a very confusing thing. I'm curious... um, so just to go on a bit of a rant again, um, Lupita Nyong'o wrote this book called Sulwe, which is about, which means star in her native language. And uh, it's about this girl who is as dark as midnight and her mother is as bright as dusk. And, and it's a journey of self-acceptance for this little girl. And it's really amazing. And if I ever have a daughter, I definitely want to buy that book for her. Um, but, uh, you know, she wishes herself to be fairer. And I wonder if you, as a brown woman like me, have ever have ever had that thought or do you think that you always sort of knew better or or were taught better from an early age? I don't think I was taught better at all. At all. Mm -hmm. I mean, just around my family, being dark-skinned wasn't essentially a good thing, which is so fucking weird because everybody in my family is dark-skinned. I don't know where that idea came from, but I just always was called out for being dark-skinned. Which is, I mean, I don't even understand how that can happen. But, you know, it's just something that I did deal with. And Mm -hmm. not just at home, also outside in school. And I mean, but I've also never wanted to be lighter skinned. It's just something that I know Um, that, you know, this is what you're born with. And this is what you're given. mm -hmm. And what people are saying is probably intrinsically wrong. So somehow I've always had that information. But I definitely was not taught it. I think the internet has been my mother (laughs) in a lot of cases. That is so true, Maria. I was thinking about that as well, because I've never been taught that as well. And for me, like I said, I've been sort of like the privileged class. But when I went to study abroad, I was definitely like the darkest person in my university, because it was like a posho university with all like rich white people. And I talk about this a lot, but Yamanda Ngozi Adichie, who's this amazing Nigerian author, she talks about the fact that um, colorism existed in Nigeria, but she only realized she was black when she went to America. And I feel the same way. I only realized I was brown when I went to the UK. I, perhaps because I come from like a slight base of privilege. Yeah, I mean, it's just such an interesting thing. Colorism, separate from racism, because it's not sort of institutional and structural, but it's more sort of attitudinal. And just uh, dealing with that is really weird because, um, you know, you are too fair for some people and too dark for some people. And I think the more you deal with the variation of that and how everyone's opinion changes around that, the more you realize that, actually there is no right color and you know it's all it's all good and it's all fine and you just have to 
accept who you are. But yeah, it's a very, very strange concept because it, you know, you can be good one day and bad the other and I don't know what to make of it. Mm, I mean, I've yet to experience interactions which tell me that it's okay to be dark skinned or like it's all right to mm-hmm. have like you know like skin tone doesn't matter because it always just at the back of their head they they've like already when they meet me or when they speak to me they've all already like compartmentalized my personality as a dark-skinned person first and like you know anything else after the fact so if i'm too outspoken or if i'm too smart or if i'm too funny it's probably because i'm compensating for the color of my skin damn that is so weird to live with that i mean is it weird it's I don't know. I don't know if I'd call it weird, though. I mean, it makes you... Uh, it kind of makes you smarter. Does that even make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, it makes you smarter. Because when you talk to all these people, you kind of want to know where they're coming from. Right? So you do think about it. But just... I guess in in the sense that we have to think about it and sort of analyze that, I mean, that shouldn't happen to us in the first place. Yeah. That is very interesting. I remember thinking sort of rebelling against it because I felt like I love my sister and I felt like she was treated wrongly. And I remember as a kid sort of thinking I'm never going to wear sunblock because um, I am brown and I'm going to embrace that. And even when I use sort of emojis, I use emojis that are sort of darker than I am because the lighter ones are too light for me. So I'm sort of like this liminal space where it's like, you know, in the middle. And a lot of people genuinely like at least six people have commented on how oh my god you're not that dark as if being dark is a bad thing and that makes me want to sort of do it even more and of course now that I'm older I regret not wearing sunscreen because I have like wrinkles at the age of 29 (laughs) but I remember this sort of rebellion against well you know no I am brown and I will embrace it and I think it's such a weird concept. Like you, Sunscreen see, has nothing to do with that, Momina. I know. But in my childish sort of, this was when I was like 12, 13. <laughs> I remember my mom bought me Fair and Lovely. And my mother has never commented on, you know, my skin or anything. It was just like the thing to buy when you're in the subcontinent. Fair and Lovely is just the cold cream to buy. In fact, I was talking to you about it uh, just yesterday where I didn't even realize it was like a bleaching cream. I just thought it was literally a cold cream that was called Fair and Lovely just to sell well. Um, But I remember thinking, I'm not going to use this and I'm not going to put on sunblock. And it's just such a weird, (laughs) like my body is genuinely like four shades lighter than the rest of my, like, you know, sun exposed skin because I didn't take care of it because I was rebelling against it. But it's it's just identity is messed up, man. I mean, obviously that is something that I never had to experience, you know, owning it because I already was it. But I do Mm. remember just getting comments from my family because now that you are talking about sun exposure, because when you do go to Mm -hmm. university, you spend so much of your time outside and, you know, you're not covered or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just remember my family sort of blaming me for my skin color, like not my immediate family, but my extended family and saying that I probably don't take care of it enough and I'm probably lazy and which is why I'm so dark. So that, (laughs) that... just for like context so for people listening, just... Mariam is the most beautiful friend of mine and I have a lot of beautiful friends, but she is the Jesus most glamorous, Christ. the most sort of fit. And it just like, it doesn't even make me sad at this point because I know you're over it, but um, it's just, yeah. it's just so fucking weird to me. I, yeah, I will never Oh yeah, I also, this, but... I kind of want to like clarify that I'm not, I'm not like describing this to say, oh my God, woe is me. This is what I've been through. But just saying that this is something that people hear on the daily if you are dark skinned yeah, in this cultural absolutely. context. And so just bringing yeah. it back to Beyonce and uh, 
the fact that she included or tried to include people of all, all shades of blackness mm-hmm. i think that was beautiful but also just yeah. like uh, like i said since i haven't sort of experienced the other side something that halsey said and i i don't know enough about her but i have be- been talking about her in in our last two podcasts but halsey mm-hmm. is uh, biracial so she's half black and um, you know recently with the uh with the george floyd incident you know where many celebrities were asked to speak out and everything uh halsey mm-hmm. did mention that she can never understand what the black community goes through or like with the black people at as a whole go through because she is a light skinned girl and that mm-hmm. she she doesn't have the same experiences because of the privilege that her fairer skin gives her and that kind of made me sad as well the fact that she's so apologetic about being biracial <laughs> and saying that yeah. you know i actually don't identify with all the struggles of my of my black side so it's it's weird colorism is weird i'm actually going to agree with you now <laughs> it is weird you don't know what to say yeah that's so interesting because the uh, halsey i've been calling her halsey all my life thank you for correcting me but um this just made me uh, rem- <laughs> made me remember this dr phil episode where there was this biracial girl and she looked black um and just like halsey is biracial and looks white um and she sort of spoke about how she identifies more with being white and everybody on the show made fun of her and dr phil also made fun of her and said no but you look black you know you are what you look and da 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 and you have curly hair and da 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 and and it sort of makes me realize how acceptable it is for halsey to say halsey to say that i don't identify with the black part well i even if she does identify with it she's not willing to speak on behalf of that and that's seen as courageous but when a biracial woman who looks black says the same thing about being white she is sort of disparaged and made fun of and it's just so complex and obviously i am not black and i am sort of like a racially ambiguous person of color so it's very hard for me to you know have any authority and credibility when i talk about these things but it's just a very interesting you know dichotomy where you know something is considered legitimate and then the other thing is sort of ridiculed it's very fucking weird man it is very interesting um Okay, you know, actually this is a can of worms. I can talk about this for the entire podcast because <laughs> as always, I was, I was about to like... include K-pop in this. <laughs> this podcast should just be called like K-pop no, and some other thoughts. K-pop and other things. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm <laughs> sorry. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? We are finally going to talk about one of your biggest obsessions, and I think that <laughs> I don't know why it took us like eight episodes to finally talk about something that you are actually an expert at. Like, I think this is this has to be like one of your most long-standing obsessions. Am I, I think wrong? so. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. Please introduce the topic for the good people of this podcast. Okay, okay. <laughs> So I don't know why I said it like that. I'm going to say it again. Okie dokie. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I'm going to be normal. <laughs> Okie dokie. So I think we have talked to our audiences a lot about the fact that I like in our dynamic, I am more of like the 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 music fanatic and Momina is more of the movie fanatic. And she like she is my go-to movie person. Ooh. She's like a she's like a Wikipedia for movies for me. Like yeah. she's the IMDb, like a human I IMDb. 
So today Beautiful. we're going to be actually discussing something super, super fun and something that I found to be really interesting. So Momina's mm-hmm. secret obsession is movie tropes. Woohoo! So movie, movie tropes. tropes. When did you first become obsessed with this very specific area of film? You know, I don't have a very good answer for that. I think um so my dad knew someone um in who works for like a very famous movie chain in our country, like a, a like a movie distributor. And so on one of our holidays he sent us like a box of DVDs and I'm talking something like 80 DVDs and I have most of them still although they probably don't work anymore I haven't tried um but I remember watching like 80 movies with my sister in like less than a month like we would watch like two or three a day it was summer vacations and I feel like that's what sparked my love for movies and because we saw so many in such a short amount of time they began to sort of blur into one one another and I began to sort of you know you begin to see patterns very early on and i think that's when i became familiar with movie tropes and of course anyone who's seen movies understands like you know the big tropes but um i just find them very fascinating um but yeah i would say i was about sort of 13 14 when i got that box of dvds and it genuinely changed my life it changed the way i thought about myself the way i thought about other people the way i thought about my place in the world and i think tropes are like a very important part of that a very important way to sort of connect people and to connect stories and ideas and into something that's familiar and accessible and i love tropes um but at the same time they sort of infuriate me like chocolate you know like i love it but also i've never had a chocolate that i didn't regret so it's that kind of thing favorite movie trope go oh man this is going to be very sort of weird but i i like I really like will they won't they. I'm sorry, like I'm a sap. I I think when it's done well, it, it's really just amazing. It's like the best thing in the world. It's like a slow burn and yeah, I really like that. Sort of like Ross and Rachel no, but maybe like when Harry met Sally, fuck yes. I love that shit. Mm. So I'm a little bit too impatient for will they won't they, but I fucking love fake relationship turns into a real relationship. Like, is there a name for that? Ooh, I'm. That's that's the name for it. That's very interesting. I like it. So, like, ooh, I've you know, I need to go to a yeah. wedding and I need to have a guy with me. I've placed an ad in the newspaper. I think yeah. I've seen at least like five movies with that concept. Yeah, I, Or like, I, I'm from I'm, I'm from Canada and like my visa expires, so I have to marry <laughs> Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> Fake marry Ryan Reynolds, and then I actually fall in love with him. Yeah. What's the movie called again? I think it's called The Proposal, maybe. Is that the one you're thinking of? Oh yeah, the proposal. Yes. With Sandra Bullock? Of course. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. With Sandra Bullock. Oh, also one of like like a more modern take on this is to all the boys of love before, which I unironically love the first part, not the second. I love that too. I haven't seen the second part. Right? It's I love the first. I fucking love it's it. It's so cute. I'm too old to love that shit, but I was just going to say there's a variation on that which is that ooh, our friends have died and they've left us our kids and we hate each other, but we have to take care of these kids and in taking care of these kids we fall in love. I think there's a Catherine Heigl movie on that concept. And I'm sure I've seen others as well. Like <laughs> I love that shit. Uh, I I don't think I'm at that stage in my life where I can love that shit. <laughs> But then again, I'm away from the stage in my life where I should love like do all the boys and <laughs> But I fucking loved it. Maybe I'm just like still 
as a person in yeah, my soul. Yeah, I think I am too. Because yeah, I also just like I like love stories. Like you wouldn't think that if you meet me because I seem quite cold on the surface, but I love a sappy love story which is sort of super emotional and ends at like an airport with a guy sort of saying, "Oh, but you must come back with me." I love that shit. Grand gestures like holding a stereo above your head outside the window. Down for it. Would you want that in real life? No, I would think it's super cringe. In real life, no. I I don't let my husband buy birthday gifts for me because I just feel like it's too much pressure on him, and I don't want to have a similar pressure when buying birthday gifts. Like I'm very weird in real life with love, but <laughs> I can live in the fantasy of it in film. That's what film is for. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I agree. And I also I love a sappy mm-hmm. rom com, but like it's so difficult Ugh. um to really navigate through all these rom coms and find one that's kind of that's kind of like a woke rom com. And I think this is one of the reasons I yeah. love to all the boys, like a mm-hmm. semi woke rom com. Was it woke? I'm trying to remember what made it woke. I mean, not not woke woke, but you know, just like so. Okay, not problematic in a way that oh would, yeah make you make the make your experience less enjoyable yeah that that makes sense there's a new disney i think it's a disney channel movie coming up where the rom-com is that um it's like a gay relationship between a girl and it's like the it's like it's subverts a trope basically which is like one of my favorite things to do with tropes is to like watch films that subvert them and there's like a lot of really good ones and i do want to get into that in a bit but i think the conceit of that is that um there's a girl who likes a guy and then the guy starts writing her letters and they're really beautiful but you find out that it's actually the guy's female friend who's writing the letters and it's like this like it's a huge phenomena because it's like disney and it's gay which disney doesn't really seem to embrace that much but i'm i'm sort of really into this sort of like opening up of um you know horizons and expanding them and and exploring new stuff so yeah that seems kind of interesting i would watch that even though it's with like 15 year olds which i'm like Ugh. but you know just for the sake of it just for the sake of the story i think it's interesting yeah rock on i think i did talk to you uh, a few years ago about a show called scum do you remember scum like c u m scum no, scum, as in S-K-A-M, which is like a Norwegian God. word. This was a Norwegian show. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yes. Actually, you did tell me a lot about that show, and, I, and it made me want to watch it. Uh, but tell me about it, because, yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> so this is a show. Um, do you remember Skins from back in the day? Like Skins. Yes. Dave Patel. So just talking about the fact that, you know, how like I still enjoyed like a high school movie as like a fully grown adult. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, so essentially, Mm -hmm. Julie Andam is like the maker of the show. And she is essentially written very, very simple love stories. So there's nothing complex about the show, but just the way that she's treated them and made it so real and so sort of Mm -hmm. um, raw. That is really nice. Because what, what Skins used to do was it used to... It was like hyper-reality. Everything was just heightened. Everything was, you know, glamorized. So I just Mm -hmm. really want to talk about this one love story since we were talking about love story tropes. So one of the biggest tropes was in season two, Mm. she had a a feminist fall in love with an asshole. Which, I mean, we have seen that story before. We've all been there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But anyway. But 
basically my point was that <laughs> i actually really like tropes that are very simple and they are overused but they're done well is what i was saying <laughs> in conclusion after like just going on and on that's what i meant like yes feminist and the fuck boy love it mm-hmm. you know it's basically the good girl bad guy story but if it's yeah. done in such a uh, in a self-awareed <laughs> way i love it yeah i can totally see that like my favorite kind of trope is the trope that is subverted so i feel like like i'm a huge horror movie aficionado and like i cannot wor- watch horror movies on my own i have to always have my sister with me to watch them with me but um so i think like horror movies are really good at subverting these tropes so like you know in psycho which is one of my favorite sort of like mystery suspense movies of all time it's by the great alfred hitchcock um he for the first time had this like really big actress of the time janet lee and she was murdered like literally like 20 minutes into the movie and that was like a big deal at the time because these people were coming to the cinema for janet lee and she wasn't in most of the movie and i think scream did the same thing with like drew barrymore and she was like the big name and she died within the first 15 minutes and and then you had all these like no name people like Nev Campbell and all the rest who of course are now like you know legends in the horror movie catalog but i really like movies that like subvert tropes so like my favorite thing is so i think like you were talking about how you like tropes that are done simply but sort of you know intelligently but i just like when they're like completely subverted but i think it's sort of the same thing as well um i don't know have you seen like um raiders of the lost ark like the indiana jones movie You know this is the part of the podcast that I was afraid of because I was like okay so Momina is going to ask me if I've seen all these iconic movies and I'm going to be like um, no I have in fact not. <laughs> well that's fine. My husband is always constantly surprised at how I haven't seen like these like famous classic movies like um Apocalypse Now and what's the one with uh, Tom Hanks and Matt Damon he, the really famous Steven Spielberg war movie Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. So I have I have a like a huge gap in my movie knowledge where I just refuse to watch war movies because they make me too sad. But it's fine. But in Raiders of the Lost Ark there's like a famous scene where Harrison Ford is like doing like a <laughs> so it's like this hyped up sword fight and uh, Indiana Jones just like pulls out a pistol and shoots him instead. <laughs> and that, i love that because that's such a huge subversion of the trope because you expect him to do like some fancy sword moves and like you know defeat the man but he just like shoots him and it's a really effective sort of like funny subversion but the reason he did that is because Harrison Ford i think he got food poisoning that day and he wasn't feeling well so they decided to just like you know end the scene very quickly and have him shoot him instead and have it be like a moment but i really love these kinds of subversions because they um I think so I remember one comedian once saying that a joke he was trying to explain what a joke is like in cerebral terms and he was saying a joke is where you set up an expectation and you defy that expectation so you know I I don't have a good example for this but you know you you think that it's going to go a certain way and the fact that it doesn't go that way is what makes it funny and I think that's what I like about the subversion of tropes as well as because you think okay fine you know this guy is going to have a sword fight and it's going to go blah 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 and he's going to win but he just like takes out his pistol shoots him dead and that's it and and i think that's what is really exciting about movie tropes as well in some ways because when they are 
um, challenged. It's really interesting and it tells you a lot about the intent of the director or the writer. So I think that's why I'm like a huge fan of tropes as well. But um, yeah, and I was I was wondering, but based on this discussion, do you think there are some tropes that you absolutely hate that you like notice on screen and like cringe every time you see them? You know what I hate is um, so in like movie adaptations of books when they try to give mm-hmm. minor characters like this deep backstory. Like I fucking hate that. Or like an angsty like dialogue. Oh, it's like no, you're yeah. a nobody. Why do you just want to like cast like yes. a super hot actor for a nobody character and give them like this deep ass backstory? Like why? It's so unnecessary. Yes, I agree with that, and I also agree with like I feel like recently there's a trend to like push like POC characters or like feminist characters into like adaptations. So like Beauty and the Beast. Remember how Belle, rather than her father. I'm talking about the Emma Watson film, by the way, like mm-hmm. the live action one. How rather than her father, she was the inventor. And that really pissed me off because that's not the point of Belle. Like, Belle isn't like this super genius inventor. She's like a dreamer and she loves books, yes. So she's like cerebral in that way, but she isn't like exceptionally smart. That's not the point of her character. Her point is that she wants to escape the provincial life that she's in and that's why she escapes to book so i just hate this like forced feminism that disney does i also hated the aladdin song i know i mean speechless it's so forced it's so forced i am so with you it is so forced because the whole point of princess jasmine is that she is trying to defy this like expectation of women and yes that is sort of present in the cartoon but it just goes again. It's called Aladdin. It's not called Princess Jasmine. The same in the Lion King remake, by the way, where they made La- um, Nala, who was Beyonce, obviously, like queen. We bow down to her. But she was like the leader of the resistance while Simba was away. And I'm like, you don't have to do that. Like, you don't have to retcon stuff into being more woke, into being more feminist. And in the same way, like, I think I've talked about this recently, but Dune is one of my favorite books of all time. It's the best sci-fi novel ever written. And there's a very important character in it. And they've made um, this, like, sort of, I don't know, like, native sand, you know, planet-dwelling person, this guy, into this black woman. And while I appreciate representation, I think at at some point it becomes just, like, contrived and forced. And I don't want representation like that. I want representation where it is genuine and from, like, the heart and soul of the character. Well thought, thought out of and made yeah. for them. Made for them. It's not like not you're, slapped not, on. you're not just, you know, slotting Absolutely. them in. And, and, and I should be glad as, like, a POC woman that there's more POC women characters that are, you know, in, like, this great sci-fi novel. But I just, for, it's like some part of me just feels so betrayed by it, like... I don't want this. I just want my actual yeah. book. Yeah, it's not, it's good, not enough. good enough. It's not good enough. Yeah, no, just like write an original thing which has a woman that is like powerful and strong and cerebral and all that shit. Don't just like, don't retcon us into history, man, because we did not yeah. have that history. And, and, and it's sort of like a yeah. slap on our face to say that, oh, actually, you do fit here because no, we didn't fit there back then. So... Like, this is just appeasement, and I, I just fucking hate it. But yeah, I agree with you. Can we address, like, the, the elephant in the room with the retconning of a character that we love? Who is it? Is it Doctor Who? Hermione. Ah, oh, yes! 
didn't J.K. Rowling say that, ooh, Hermione was never described as uh, white in the book, so, like, she could be black, but no, there's, like, multiple passages where she talks about her pale face, and just fuck you, J.K. Rowling. You don't get a retcon representation into your books when you didn't think of that because you were too white and privileged to think about those things. Yeah, no thanks. Not good enough. I would have respected her so much more if she said, listen, yes, I... Should have checked my privilege back then. I didn't know any better, but I know better now. And I wish I would it would have been different. But just doing this as like an afterthought yeah. is so exploitative. It is so exploitative. So exploitative. I want to just go into like a fantasy novel tangent. So one of my favorite fantasy novelists is Brandon Sanderson, who completed The Wheel of Times. And he has his own books that I really love. And he has this uh, series called Mistborn. And it's with like a female protagonist. And she's amazing. She's complex. She's very sort of well-defined. And she doesn't feel like like a forced feminist symbol because she is dirty and dark and like she has her own sort of demons to contend with. But someone on Reddit, he's actually very present on Reddit, and someone said, well, you know, I like, I really like this character of Vin in Mistborn, who, what's the name of the character, but I feel like there's no other female characters, so actually the books don't pass the Bechdel test. You know, there's no women talking to each other about anything that isn't, about anyone that isn't a man. And he replied to that and said, yes, I, you know, acknowledge that. I was so focused as a man, a white man of privilege to write this complex female protagonist that I forgot that I should have written more in, that I should have written side characters and, you know, B-plots revolving women that didn't involve men. And I thought that was so refreshing because who has the awareness and the humility to admit that? Yes, I was wrong. I was trying to do this right thing. And I just, I couldn't see the forest for the trees and I have my privilege and it, it didn't allow me to, you know, make a complete sort of uh, representative vision of what I was. And I just like, I love that guy. He is so like, I don't know, man. I just really appreciate people admitting that they make mistakes. And yeah, he made a mistake, but I have so much respect for him now because he admitted it. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, oh, you know, Dumbledore was always meant to be gay. <sighs> he wasn't J.K. Like, Rowling. Fuck you. You know that. Yeah, there is base. I mean, there's nothing in canon that talked about it. Nothing. It makes me so sad. It makes me want to cry oh. sometimes. Like, I feel like so much of my childhood and my, like... Same. My, like, you know, my, my need to write and my sort of obsession with books comes from jk rowling man like and it's just so sad why did you let us down i wouldn't be the person that i am without her it's so true and to didn't realize that you you know i i don't know if you feel the same way but like this is gonna be a huge tangent but you know how like some serial killers do a really good job by having like babies with them and women with them so they like use the woman and the baby to like lure people into you know, this, like, horrible fate. And I feel like it's the same thing. Like, when I'm with a woman, I feel like, okay, fine. This is it. I'm in safe hands. It's going to be a good ride. But there's so much complexity to people that, like, a woman who is white and privileged is not going to have your back the same way as someone who is from your context. And I just feel like J.K. Rowling, because of her circumstances and because of just, like, the privilege that she has, has let like an entire generation of young people down so badly. And I don't know what to, I don't know how to deal with that. Uh, she foreshadowed it. I mean, remember how like Harry just grew up idolizing Dumbledore? 
Yeah. And just thinking that Dumbledore is just the most perfect wizard in the world. And then, you know, after Dumbledore dies. Damn. Um, like, after Dumbledore dies, he realizes that he was actually quite an asshole. He was a very shitty person who exploited. I know I've used that word a lot, but you know what I mean. Yeah, and the same with his dad as well. He realized that his father wasn't, like, the great guy that he thought he was. But he was, like, a bully and he was, like, a jock. And, yeah, that's true. She is yeah. James Potter and she is Albus Dumbledore, so I guess that makes sense. She, she is Dumbledore, yeah. Ah. But yeah, I guess it's just part of growing up is realizing that the things you were obsessed with were actually so problematic and maybe they were a product of their time. But I would have been happy if they were left at that. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay to sort of, you know, idolize heroes and then realize that they're just human because that is the human condition and that everyone has flaws and. We don't have to accept it, but we can just sort of try to sort of mediate and negotiate through that pain <laughs> because it is very painful. I mean, I, I know that people who... <laughs> it is painful. Yeah, I know people who have read Harry Potter and have the, have had the same feelings that you and I do can relate to that pain. But I think for anyone else, it might seem dramatic. <laughs> but yeah, it's painful, man. It's not It's not a good feeling. It's, yeah, I mean, you just feel like, you know you were manipulated yeah <laughs> that's what it feels like yeah it feels like you were just like taken advantage of like you're you just stepping into the world and you know discovering imagination or discovering like yeah. friendship for a lot of people discovering like who they were as people i think they just feel like that they were manipulated through all of those experiences yeah. which is why it's like a little bit sad now that she's turned out to be such a major transphobe. Yeah. I'm glad that, like, brown girls growing up today have, like, Lupita Nyong'o's Sulwe and, like, Beyonce's brown skin girl to look up to and to, like, you know, sort of take in. And I, I'm glad that it's sort of diversifying and we have a lot more complexity in the way that we discuss who we are and our place in the world. So at least, at least things are moving on and... We don't have to rely on J.K. Rowling for a whole generation to tell them what their worth is. True. Anyway. So, what's a movie trope that you hate? That's something that I really want to know. <laughs> I have so many. I was thinking about this. And I think, like, one of the big ones, especially for, like, our culture, is, like, makeovers. I fucking hate the makeover trope. Especially when there's, like, a supermodel-looking motherfucker woman. <laughs> And she has glasses and frizzy hair. And then you remove the glasses and you remove the frizzy hair. And she's like this supermodel because that's what she is. So, um, and so that's one I hate. And then there's other ones that I hate um, for different reasons. Like I hate the fat friend trope. Like the fat, funny friend. Because I was fat for most of my teenage life. And um, I always remember... And I remember, like, a, <laughs> I remember reading in, like, a John Le Carre novel. And I love John Le Carre. I think he's, like, an amazing... Um, author but I remember him talking about a woman who was fat and she was funny because and he described this as she was funny because she felt like that was the only space for her to exist and I remember thinking wow this is a man and he is like a cold war like he worked in the MI5 and he's like a huge deal and he understands women because I remember I was like a fat teenager and I remember being funny just because I felt like there was no other space for me to fit in like you could either be fat and funny or you could be thin and beautiful and smart and and so I hate that trope as well and um there's so many like especially with like 
villains i think there's so many tropes like you know the villain when like a hero enters a room and it's dark and there's a villain sitting in the sofa like far away in the darkness and the hero realizes there's a villain there or like i love that trope <laughs> no i fucking love the trope i i love the swivel chairs i love the i love the little kitty cat the cat i love the slicked back hair listen <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, you want to hear a good fact about the cat? Uh, that's one trope that I'm going to stand by. <laughs> I feel like Dummy. I might be making this up, but I feel like the cat and the villain trope came from the Godfather, and I feel like Marlon Brando. I I, I remember reading this ages ago, so I might be wrong, yeah. but I feel like on the set of the Godfather. Marlon Brando saw like a stray cat and he picked the cat up and put the cat in his lap and started stroking her and said okay we're ready to shoot. And I think that's where the trope of the cat came from and I think like Austin Powers did that as well and that's where it became popularized. But yeah, I think we have Marlon Brando to thank for that particular trope. He's just a crazy person. He also put like cotton Love it. balls in his mouth cuz his mouth looks very like different like ooh i want to make you laugh or you can't refuse and like look what they did to my boy that's not how he sounds if you've seen his other movies so he actually used like a physical impediment to like change the shape of his mouth so that you know his voice would sound different very effective but yeah a lot of a lot of love for marlon brando mm. love him and he is the reason everybody associates cats with like evil i guess I'll tell you a trope that I hate. Tell like, me. It just it annoys me mm-hmm. so much. Go for it. It's the nice guy, nice girl trope in movies. I hate it. You know the I'm such a nice guy. You should choose me. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, or just like is is usually very very like you know just has a chip on his shoulder because look at me. I've always been nice to you, as if you know that's something that's that has to be rewarded. Yeah. You should be with me. Like friend zone is such a weird concept to me because like the idea that a friend is less than like a partner is so weird to me because I have a partner and I have friends and it just really depends on context and just the fact that people feel like they're owed sex because they're nice to you and they open a door for you and they bring you like a snack it's just so strange and I I'm glad that it's becoming like reviled and becoming something that's like mocked because Yeah, like why would having a friend be like the second best thing? It's just so fucking weird to me. Friends are awesome. Yeah. Exactly what I said, like the chip on the shoulder thing. If because I'm nice to you, I need to be rewarded. Yeah. By like, you know, your romantic affections or essentially sex. Yes. Yes. I'm going to say it. Friends are better than fucking sex, man. Friends are golden. Good friends are better than sex. <laughs> Controversial. Controversial. I hope my husband's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> But I was talking about that fucking Taylor Swift song. Um, it's called "You Belong with Me." Okay, I haven't heard it. And it's it. literally uh, the entire music video is just like the Madonna and the horror concept. Uh, the good part is that Taylor Swift plays both. Oh, is that the, the one which is like I wear short skirts, you wear something? Absolutely, uh, I wear t-shirts, she wears short skirts. There you go. I hate that um, fucking song. So, Ugh. Taylor Swift is like the not like other girls of pop music. 
I just think that she just comes once again comes from a place of privilege. Yeah. So a lot of her like realizations, like Kate Winslet, just come like very late into the game. Wait, I love Kate Winslet. What the fuck do you mean? Kate Winslet. We talked about this. Did we? We talked about this in the last episode. She's like, oh my god, I shouldn't have worked with Woody Allen. What was I oh, thinking? I shouldn't oh, really oh. have wor- worked with people like Roman Polanski or Woody Allen. Got it, got and it. she worked with them like three years ago. Yeah. So got she's it. a woman in her 40s who's just now realizing that, okay, it's maybe it's not a good idea to work with shitty white men. And <laughs> to work with pedophiles, maybe not the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. she, just as a white woman just realizes things very very later on Mm -hmm. so i think all of us have unlocked ourselves at some point in our lives it's just that she did it late into her teen years and you know stuck with it and wrote a song about it that's really really famous and now it's become like a topic of like you know something we talk about when we talk about pop culture Mm -hmm. and we talk about like unlocks damn Uh, she has grown out of it oh she she did very publicly say listen i now realize that no one can take your man because it's not a possession. So good that she realized that. But once again. Too little too late as Jojo says. Especially she gets there. Yeah. I mean. It, but you know if a black woman. Or like a person of any person of color. Would get there so late. They would get like slated. <laughs> right from the beginning. So I don't know. Yeah. That's exactly why. I always say that you know. I just always end up using Taylor Swift as an example. Because she's like the whitest girl I can think of. Yeah, you know a girl who is privileged because of her whiteness because you know she is just as talented as her counterparts who are people of color maybe she's less talented than them but you know just the fact that she's allowed to be mediocre and allowed to like make these mistakes and allowed to not realize things as white people say yeah yeah, that's why I keep on using her as as an example yeah I found this podcast called Brown Girls Reading and I really liked it. And I feel like it's just, that is what it is. It's like Brown Girls Talking is our podcast, basically. I can get down with that. Down with it. Let me tell you another one of my like really hated tropes. Because it's just maybe because like it's a personal flaw of mine that I can't walk in heels. But I hate women running in heels. Like Jurassic Park made it super famous where um, Bryce Dallas Howard is running in like super high heels. From a fucking dinosaur. Um, but a lot of horror movies do this as well. And um, I'm the sort of person who at my graduation I wore heels. I'm 5'10 so I don't really wear heels a lot. But I wore it for my graduation. And I fell in front of like my entire class and my parents. Oh and my man. Teachers, and it was the most humiliating part of my life ever. And so I just have like this aversion to heels. And just like women running in heels. Not down for it. Oh, damn. (laughs) You know what this just reminds me of? You know, you you talked about like subverting these tropes. I like it when movies do these tropes, but in like a self-aware way or just like to Mm -hmm. make fun of these tropes. Yeah. Like, uh, so, you know, we've talked about the Sundre before, right? Mm -hmm. The trope is that I think it's called a harem trope Mm -hmm. because there's this one really, really bland boy. You know how you talked about Bella Swan being like a bland Bland canvas canvas character? Yeah. So you would have like a blank canvas character, but this person has like five or six girls falling in love with him. Yeah. And all of these girls represent a different trope. Oh, wow. And there's almost always a Sundari girl in there, right? Wow. Who would just like slap him or hit him or and say, okay, you know, get the fuck out of my face, but also I love you. Um, oh, wow. And so now there are certain animes that have started to like make fun of that. So like, um, 
I don't remember what anime it was, but like a Sundari girl literally had like machine guns, and then she, um, whenever she would you know get feisty, she would like shoot machine guns at her boy, like her Ooh. her the subject of her affection, and say I hate you, but also I love you. <laughs> it was just the funniest shit in the world. Damn, unhealthy. Yeah, I I'm just saying it's super funny that they did it in a very very funny way. <laughs> But is a sundry like normally a girl or can it be a boy as well? Oh no, it can be a boy as well. But these harem concepts are generally um, written for men, I guess. Got it. Interesting. Super interesting, man. I feel like I should get into anime. Like it seems like a whole world of like, like really complex shit that I haven't explored. I mean, I'm not an expert and I'm not fully in it. Maybe someday I'll get fully in it, and I, and this could be like my secret obsession. Ooh, interesting. I feel like brown representation or like just POC representation seems to like is kind of one of my obsessions and one of yours as well. But I feel like we talk about it every time anyway. So <laughs> maybe not worth talking about as a separate episode. I mean, that just comes with us being two brown girls talking about shit like this. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is who we are. Okay, let me tell you about one of my other, um, some of my other like most hated um, tropes. So like, I really hate the... Like, the really smart, like, cold, socially awkward person. Like, I think Sherlock is a good example of that, but also with women. Like, I think all of Big Bang Theory is, like, these, like, smart people who are basically, like, autistic almost. Like, they just don't seem to relate to people. And that really grinds my gears because there's there's a lot of smart people. And I know a lot of them, a lot of them being women, who are smart and are sociable and are, like, amenable and... That is one of the things that I really hate. I just don't understand what this aversion is to smart people in Hollywood. Especially, like, because, like, a lot of the villains are, like, people with British accents, like Scar in The Lion King. And, obviously, British accents are seen to be smarter. And, and so this, like, thing of conflating smart with evil or with, like, aloofness or coldness... I just fucking hate because it makes like intelligence so inaccessible and I think that intelligence is actually something that you can work at and inform yourself and learn more about stuff and you know if it's anything that isn't like mathematics it's something that people can learn and and improve themselves on so that's that's one of my most hated tropes as well what do you think about that one? Big Bang Theory is actually a show that is entirely made up of tropes I think it's one of the reasons I stopped watching it because at some point it stops being funny like the gimmick stops being funny and it's just like okay but you're just making fun of these geeks I just remember this this particular episode where Penny has a boyfriend who is very very obviously a dumb jog Penny is very very obviously a dumb blonde and all these smart guys are just being assholes to the dumb jock and the dumb blonde and it's uh, you know they're just like very very unlikable people and it's just like you know i just feel like they sort of laughed at the geeks not with them and at the nerds but not with them yeah so you know it would make fun of them and just like yeah it, it was just entirely made up of uh tropes yeah. but not in a not in a good way <laughs> so yeah. i don't think it's a it's a bad example. Big Bang Theory would be a bad example. Yeah, not in a like a smart, self-aware way. I feel I I heard someone describe Big Bang Theory once as a smart show for dumb people, and I'm gonna be super controversial, but I feel like that's what Christopher Nolan movies are as well. They're like smart movies for dumb people, so that they can feel smart about themselves. Um, I just don't think that they're like that their intent 
I feel like their intent is to make people feel like, oh my god, I understood that, so I'm so smart. Which is like the wrong, that's the wrong intention for a film to have, I think. I think films can be super cerebral and smart and intense. But then wasn't Sherlock basically the same? I feel like Sherlock... Wasn't Sherlock, the BBC series Sherlock, wasn't it the same? It was just made to make you feel smart? But I feel like Sherlock is always like one step ahead of you. And that's the same with the books as well. Because I'm a huge fan of the short stories and the novels. I've read, I have read genuinely all of them. The thing with Sherlock was that you would always feel like you're one step behind. And he would explain it and then you'd be like, oh, okay, I would never have thought of that. But I feel like with Christopher Nolan, the way he sets up his movies, it's like... People always come out of his movies thinking, oh my god, I got it. Did you get it? Or are you stupid? But maybe that's just my <laughs> sort of like pretension as well. I just don't like the way his films are framed. They're just like, they lack heart and they just are, mm. they're just like forcefully obtuse and like obscure and, and I don't like them. I don't know. No, that's very, very valid and I do agree with it to a point. But I also think that it takes some amount of talent to make an audience feel so included and so smart. But do you think it fe- it is included or do you think audiences feel excluded? Like, do you think it's like, it makes like an us versus them thing? Like, oh my God, I got this and you didn't get it. So therefore I am better. I feel like his films are very divisive in that way. And and they're not like hard films to follow at all. Like they're pretty easy to follow, especially if you are sort of, you know, um, familiar with like the tropes of filmmaking and the tropes of like time shifts and time jumps and all that, all the rest of it. And I just feel like his films are divisive in that sense. They just like make this like us versus them based on intellect categories, which I'm not a fan of. Uh, if I'm being honest with you, I've seen each Christopher Nolan movie exactly one time each and never a second time. <laughs> yeah. So probably, you know, my opinion is not fully formed because of that particular reason. But I do feel like um, it does take some amount of talent to make an audience feel like they're part of the story. Um, I don't know if they're excluded. I mean, if you watch a Christopher Nolan movie and you feel smart when you come out of it, or when you have these discussions, like, okay, this is what I got from it. Did you get that? I think it's there's some merit to that. They are 100% blockbusters. Uh, do they claim to be, like, these deep movies that make you think or, or, like, provide a social commentary? Like, have they ever claimed to be any of those movies? Because I know James Cameron does make these claims. I don't think they claim to be it specifically, but I think it's, like, the Rick and Morty phenomenon where people are like, oh, my God, I'm so smart because I understand Rick and Morty and you don't. And I think that Chris Nolan is, like, right at the same sort of level as that, where his fans, I think it's a fandom problem, where his fans think that it's, like, this... um, It's the fandom. It's the fandom, then. I I think so. Because I I, I do think Chris Nolan's talented. He's, like, he's a good director. I don't think he's one of the best, like people say he is. And so, like, I'm not a huge fan of Chris Nolan, but I don't know. I think I think I have issues. I would like to say I'm very glad that um, Hans Zimmer turned down the um, opportunity to work with Chris Nolan on Tenet, which is his new movie, to work instead on Dune, which I am so excited about. And I'm going to make you... That's going to be one of my secret obsessions at some point, because I'm, like, obsessed with the book, and I'm so excited about the movie, and you're going to have to read the whole, like, 1,300-page book. At some point. I I think I just might. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You might. love it. 
Yeah. I need something to be obsessed with. And actually it has a lot of like Arabian influence as well, like a lot of Arabian terminology and like Mughal terminology. It's like a really weird fucking book and, and you would love it. Sure. Sure. I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll give mm-hmm. it a go. Mm-hmm. But yeah, movie scores. So I like it when the music is sort of taking me with the authorial intent. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when I just want to watch a movie and not really think about it. But then there are other movies that, you know, I I do think that the track is sort of deviating from how I'm, I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to feel this particular way, so don't force me to feel this particular way. Which is why, uh, another thing, it's weird that I'm talking about, like, a teenage show in Norway, but Yuliandam was also really, really smart about this, that whenever she would have these pivotal scenes, there would be no music at all. Yes. Like, the show was known for its choice of music, because mm. they would choose, like, really popular songs as well. But whenever there were these pivotal scenes, there was no background music. And so it was really up to the actors to portray everything with their with their eyes. And like, you know, th- so there would be scenes in which you're basically, these two characters are having a Facebook chat, but we're only seeing the expressions of one of the characters and then the rest of the chat we're seeing on screen. Oh, wow. And, but they were still so fucking engaging just because of how the, you know, just soundlessly, wordlessly, how the actors would sort of portray the emotions that they're feeling. I mean, I don't know. I feel like, so what you said reminds me a lot of, like, it's called the Kuleshov effect. Um, And it's like, I think, like, a Soviet filmmaker first came up with this. And um, it was a series of shots of, like, this actor just looking blankly into the screen. And what the filmmaker did was he spliced in, like, different scenes before that scene of the filmmaker, of, of the actor, sorry, looking, like, blankly ahead. And based on the context of the previous scene, the audience would derive different meanings out of it. So, you know, if there was like a lady in the first scene and the guy was looking blankly ahead, it would be like, oh, this guy is like longing for his partner. If it was a war scene before, it would be like, oh, this guy is like traumatized by war. And so that made people, it, it, it led us to understand that context is very important in filmmaking. And that's one of the, like the first like big film theory bits that I remember learning about early on when I was interested in filmmaking and I feel like music is very much the same so when you don't use a lot of like bombastic loud music and you just let the audience breathe and you let the film breathe and let the audience sort of come to their own conclusions based on the context that you've laid out for them it's so much more effective than Hans Zimmer going and I feel like he only does that in Chris Nolan movies so I don't know. I just feel like it's a direction. It's a, like a directorial intent thing. And uh, I, I just don't like Chris Nolan. But yeah, I think like less is more. And you should really allow the <laughs> audience to be like a part of that experience and create their own meaning. So that's like just my opinion. This also reminds me, I don't know why I'm talking about this show so much. Like, uh, But I just feel like a lot of the things you're talking about is sort of leading to this. Mm-hmm. So another thing that the show did, like I said, you know, the each season was like a POV season, right? So it varied from character to character. Mm-hmm. So this girl that I, the feminist character that I keep talking about, Nura. So mm-hmm. in season one, uh, season one was from another character's POV, and so when a, during this entire season, Nura was painted to be like this really cool feminist chick, like she's really independent. She lives in like a shared household situation. Uh, you know, with housemates, and she's she's just super cool and super feminist. 
Yeah. But this is how like that the main POV character saw her. And then when we actually when it came to her Nura's own POV season, we saw her as just, you know, another girl who was sort of like navigating her way through the world and, you know, having her values questioned and falling in love and needing love to feel validated. Yeah. And then season 3 was um from the POV of this gay guy who was once again, uh, you know, he ha- he was like, you know, struggling with his own sexual identity and feeling lonely and so when he would view Nura he would view her as like this lovesick girl who who only talks about the boy that she's in love with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and then season 4 was through the POV of the Muslim girl. And she would view Nura as like this white girl who likes to party and has a lot of friends and is sometimes a rival. Oh wow. The the Muslim girl isn't any less smart than Nura is. You know that that's how the Muslim girl will look at it, but you know she just gets to gets away with a lot more just because she is a white Norwegian girl who fits into everything that white Norwegian teenagers enjoy. Mm-hmm. So it was just really cool how context and POVs just like and in a very subtle way. Yeah, that's just super like interesting. We're talking about you, you know how the audience can feel different things about the same fucking character. Yeah. I love that. And that's one of the tropes of I like the kind of thing where you can see like one character from different perspectives and see just like the, they're completely different people depending on context. Like context is like king in my mind and I think context is everything. Like I'm a social science major and you know that's what's been drilled into us, but yeah, that's super interesting. I feel like the more you talk about the show the more I feel like I I I should just really watch it. I think you as a person who just like you know always consumes <laughs> film and TV show from like almost like a like an academic perspective I feel like just like from a film studies point of view I think you'd enjoy the show. Mhm. I would like to say though that one of my most watched YouTube like series is like um people from RuPaul's Drag Race putting on makeup and doing like 40 minute makeup tutorials. So <laughs> Maybe I've changed. Fucking love it. <laughs> Isn't so it the best? So therapeutic. It is so therapeutic. It's like watching someone making a cake or something. Amazing. I'm gonna watch some of that tonight. It is just amazing. <laughs> But like whenever I watch that, I end up like using those makeup techniques. And you know, makeup artists always say that you don't need drag techniques in your everyday makeup. <laughs> yeah, they do say that a lot. Like, who needs to bake? But I'm like, bitch, I'm gonna bake if I want to bake. Go away. Yeah. Or like who needs that much fucking product? Like what are you trying to cover? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Do you remember me once telling you that I hate putting makeup on? That I do it because I feel like it makes me more socially acceptable. Yeah. I feel like during COVID, so like I've been working from home technically yeah. or wearing a mask outside for the past like what five months. I actually miss makeup now, man. Like it was so fun to look good. <laughs> I. I miss it. I fucking love makeup. Do you remember <sighs> when you were talking about the Tom Hanks movie where he talks about like a bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils? Sharpened pencils? Yes, you've got Mel McGrain Tom Hanks OG. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I was and I was like how would I like interpret that pickup line or like if someone were to use a pickup line with the same sensibility? Yeah. And I actually said oh maybe like a K-pop picture card just as a joke. <laughs> But then I thought about it. Like what would actually work for me? What Ooh. would actually work for me if somebody just takes me to fucking makeup shop and buys me just a whole bunch of makeup? Yeah. I would marry them on the spot. I love it. Love so it. makeup to me is like what stationery is to you. I love stationery but not as much as I love <laughs> makeup. I just love 
collecting makeup and love putting it on my face. Sounds great. <laughs> I think you're just a lot better at makeup than I am. Like, I think I would love it more if it, like, was as... It does change me completely. Like, the other day I sent my colleague, like, a picture of me in my garden with, like, my lemon tree. And I was really proud about the lemon trees. And she messaged back the dreaded words, Is that you? <laughs> and I realized she'd never seen me without makeup. So I just looked like an alien to her. And I was like, damn, I looked really different without makeup. First of all, that is rude. <laughs> that is not something you say. No, my colleagues are interesting. You know, I work in like the fitness industry, right? Mm-hmm. So the one thing that I have to teach new instructors is never to ask a person if they're pregnant. Ooh. Like you would think that this is something that people would consciously avoid when they see a person who's bigger. Yeah. But like, just don't go around asking people if they're pregnant. Yeah. I remember when I was 16, I went to the doctor for back pains and he assumed that I was like in my mid 20s and pregnant. And I remember being so embarrassed about it because I was like a really big girl back then. And that has stuck with me for life. (laughs) But yeah, don't ask people if they're pregnant, man. Doctors are notorious for being fat shamey, aren't they? Also, just like women at the salon would just tell you that everything about you is so wrong. Oh my god. I was just going to say that I go to this specific place in in the city which I live in, which incidentally is not the city uh, where Mariam lives. Um, but I go to this specific place and I have a running joke with my husband. Guess how many times someone's going to put me down based on my appearance? Because I don't wear makeup when I'm like out and about and sort of, you know, daily life. And they always comment on, oh my God, your skin is so bad. You should use this product. I think they get a commission because they always recommend like products to me based on how shitty my skin is. <laughs> and I always feel so shitty about it. But now I've sort of realized that I could just make a joke of it and tell my husband, well, three women told me that my skin is shitty today. So it's better than the five women who told me last time I went. Leave me alone. Oh man, do you know what? Body hair is something that I can never accept about myself. Yeah. I know it's like part of being a feminist is just like loving yourself with your body hair, but that's just one part of me that I always get rid of and just can I'm never happy with. No, I agree with you. Like I know that I shouldn't it shouldn't bother me, but it does bother me because I actually like feeling silky smooth and same. But yeah, for like brown women, especially for me, I don't know what your hair growth is like, but like for me if I don't like shave or wax like every couple of weeks it's like ooh, gorilla time it's like episode six of mariam's my secret obsession it's bad shit but yeah i don't know it's sad it's it's tough being brown i'm getting the shit lasered off yeah as we speak i think i might do that as well it sounds like a good it sounds like a good deal never having to go in again and like be in pain 40 minutes every week sounds like a deal to me this is like pain just for two minutes a month (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'm done for that. it's so weird that as women we have to even like just sort of you know like barter off one kind of pain with another kind of like a man would never think like this would they not do they have something that's painful i can't think of anything like i wrestle with like i play wrestle with my husband sometimes and he's always surprised like i sort of like he outweighs me by a lot and he's taller than me and he's always surprised by how strong I am. And I'm like, bruh, like we bleed every fucking month. We go through so many like painful procedures in the name of beauty. Like, I don't know why the fuck you're surprised. <laughs> Guys, they wouldn't last a day in our lives. And every time I have my period, I tell my husband that, bruh, you bleed, might think you're strong. Bleed out. Yeah. Bleed out every month. Women, by the way, have more pain receptors than men. So even if it's like the equal, an equal level of, pain 
um, and and discounting the fact that men are heavier, have more women muscle. More? Yeah, even discounting the weight and the muscle and everything else that men have, even discounting that, women would feel it more because they have double the pain receptors of men. Because that's fair. <laughs> Give more pain receptors to people that's who are so going to go through childbirth. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, just before we like wrap up this episode, I really want to talk about character tropes. Oh, yes. And I actually want to ask you, I mean, we did touch upon it a little bit when we talked about the sundre mm-hmm. and like the feminist and the asshole and the fuckboy and all of that. But what is for you a guilty pleasure character trope? Ooh, a guilty pleasure character trope. Hmm. I don't know if this is necessarily a character trope but I really like when people play dumb only to show their hand at the last minute. I can't think of like a really good example of this, but I like when especially women like pretend to play dumb and then maybe like legally blonde is a good, you know, marker of this, but she doesn't ever pretend to be oh, dumb. She never pretends to be. Blonde. Yeah. But I think maybe pretend to it's be the dumb, point that know? like people like the audience perceives that this person is super stupid because she's a woman. And then, the woman's like, well, guess what, bitches? <laughs> Smarter than you. So I like that kind of thing. This, like, play on... Like a, like a Sansa Stark? Like a Sansa Stark, yeah. Where Well, I think Sansa had, like, a more natural evolution where she wasn't really... The audience perceived her to be dumb when she was genuinely dumb because she was, like, a literal child. And then she sort of grew into her own. So that's, uh, that's the thing I appreciate as well. But I think it's just sort of, like, women who... Um, are exploiting people's perceptions of them. In season 8, though, all the men in her life are still underestimating her. Like, Jon Snow is still scoffing at the fact that, oh, Sansa thinks she's so smart. And Tyrion is still like, oh, Cersei won't hurt you. You have nothing to be afraid of. That's true, but was Sansa Stark in season 8 really smart? Or was she just, like, said to be smart? Like, I have a lot of problems with season 8. Um, but I, I see your point. But I think my sort of thing is not just, um, I think it's, yeah, the other characters' perceptions of a character because she is a woman or she is gay or she is, you know, whatever, like a technically like marginalized fringe community. And then she's like, well, guess what? I am just as good as you and probably even better. And, and I, I like that kind of subversion a lot. Does that make sense? It does. But that's not a guilty pleasure, though. It's not something you should be guilty about. <laughs> well, I think I feel as a feminist, I feel really bad about the fact that as an audience member, I do feel like, oh, this character is like a total bimbo. And then I'm like, well, psych <laughs> and subverted. And so I feel like as a feminist, just the fact <laughs> that they're like playing um... on my like internalized misogyny <laughs> makes me a shitty person. Um, but then I'm like, oh, okay, this is what they're doing. I, see. I don't know. <laughs> that makes sense. But yeah. What do you think of the bad boy trope? Ooh, I I love a good bad boy. Do you? Right. Yeah. That was the that's my guilty pleasure. I know you were going to throw it back at me. Yeah. That is my guilty pleasure. Yeah, I can see but it. Right now, I'm struggling to think of like a good bad boy. Ooh, that's a very good point. Maybe like like a Jamie Lannister. <laughs> but Jamie Lannister has such a like a well-defined like redemption arc. So I don't know. Well, at the end he arc? didn't. His arc went to shit because Did he really David though? and Dan. <laughs> yeah, I still believe that yeah. in the books he's gonna have like a legit redemption Jeez. arc. But yeah, let's think of like a good bad boy trope. Um, who is a bad boy? Um, I'm gonna actually quickly Google this. Right. 
I mean, I love a bad boy trope, but I'm just thinking of a bad boy trope that's well done. I was thinking of uh, what, the Breakfast Club bad boy, but I didn't like that character at all. Yeah. I'm thinking of, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, which is from Gone with the Wind at the end with Clark Gable. I'm thinking of Rebel Without a Cause, but also something that I don't really like. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Do you think, like, Jamie Dornan in um, Fifty Shades is a bad boy? I don't, I don't know. Probably not. No, he's not a bad boy. He's just a kinky boy. Oh, right. <laughs> There's a difference. What constitutes a bad boy, then? He's a, he's a weird guy. Actually, you know what? He takes care of her, but he also thinks of her as, like, a possession and, like, stalks her and shit. Does he take care of her? Like, in a pet kind of way? Or in, like, a you're a human being and I mean, deserve respect kind of way? Uh, I think it's in a pet kind of way because he, like, buys her shit and asks her to move into his fancy place. How does he take care of her? Yeah, it's a very weird film. I feel like we should have, like, an episode about that film. This should just be, yeah. like, a pop culture. I, th- I guess it is. Ooh, you know what's coming to mind right now is Star Wars, Han Solo, when, when Leia tells her, I love you, and he <laughs> goes, I know. That's kind of... to me as an asshole. <laughs> what is a good bad boy? I mean, I fucking love this trope, but then... Okay, what's the worst bad boy? I think James Bond, because he is like a misogynist, and he like literally, like I think, like rapes women because he, he has sex with them without their consent. He tricks them into having sex with yeah, him. Yeah, I never want to talk about the James Bond series. <laughs> yeah. Because it's very obviously just like a... Meh. It's just like, you know, the male gaze. Yeah, it's in so inappropriate. And, and and it's so like coercion and like non-consensual. And, and the women are just clearly eye candy and they don't have agency. And it's all about him and his penis. And it's just like weird. So yeah, he's like an actual bad, bad boy. But we are in the quest for... We're on the quest for like a, a good, good bad, bad boy. boy. And I am I'm racking my brains for it right yeah. now. Same. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think Beauty and the Beast, the Beast is a bad boy? <laughs> <laughs> Always gonna go back to Disney, uh, my friend. That is also a different thing. <laughs> yeah, he reformed. I was actually thinking of Ten Things I Hate About You, uh the Heat Ledger character. Ooh. Is he a good bad boy? I think so. I don't remember that movie that well. I don't either, but I think he starts off really shitty. Yeah, but I don't know if he was super problematic, is what I mean. Oh. Because that movie is hella old, so I just don't want to be like, oh yeah, he's a good bad boy. Yeah, I don't remember that well either. What is a bad boy? Yeah, I feel like dangerous, mysterious, and also maybe sort of like cold is what's coming to my mind, but then you... Maybe it's like the Sundre concept where it's like, ooh, actually, deep down inside, Sundre, yeah. (laughs) Deep down inside, they're not that bad. But I can just think of Beast from Beauty and the Beast. But then he is a bad boy supposed to, like, reform (laughs) himself and become even hotter because that's what the Beast does, right? You know, we were talking about Do All the Boys Have Loved Before. Hmm. Um, at around the same time, Netflix also had another movie that became super popular, which was The Kissing Booth. Oh, yeah. Which does, like, a play on, like, a, a bad boy. But that bad boy is a straight-up asshole, and it's such a bad movie. Oh, I've, I've actually seen, like, some YouTube um, commentaries on it, where he's, like, aggressive, and he, like, slams her car, and he forces her not to... Yeah, he's a shitty person. He's, like, an abusive person. Yeah, yeah, straight-up toxic abusive... Ugh. Yeah. And is it self-aware? Like, is it supposed to be like, ooh, this is a red flag? Or no, is it like, ooh, it's so romantic, he hears about you? 
I don't even know. But that movie, I don't think that movie is trying to be self-aware. I don't think that movie is trying to be woke. It's just a Netflix movie trying to make money. <laughs> yeah, and it worked. It did work, I'm sure. Okay, I have a trivia question for you. I don't have a uh, I just have one because I feel like this was just like a weird fucking topic to come up with trivia questions about. But I have my one trivia question. Are you ready for it? Go ahead. Okay. So you know this like really cliche movie trope where this like old guy says, I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah. Okay, so which of these movies has the cliche line, I'm getting too old for this shit, or like a variation of it where they don't say shit, maybe they say crap or something like that. So I'm going to give you four options. You have one answer. Mm-hmm. Star Wars, The Mask of Zorro, Lethal Weapon or Behind Enemy Lines? Which do you think has the cliche line, I'm getting too old for this shit? Isn't Lethal Weapon famous for this line? Is it? I think so. Or is it all of them? (laughs) (laughs) Damn it! It is all of them. I should have just gone with Lethal Weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. I also love in cop movies when they say, uh, why do they always run? <laughs> and then they chase them. Like, I love that line before a chase. Why do they always run? Yeah. <laughs> or like, he's behind us or he's following yeah. us. In the TV show community, mm-hmm. Troy and Abed do a take on that where, you know, where they're doing like a role play sort of thing and then they are actually going to chase the bad guy mm-hmm. in the role play situation and they both kind of trip over each other when they're trying to say this line. <laughs> why do they always Okay, fine, let's stay together. Why do they always run? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I like it. Okay, so what, if, what are some of your other, like, super cliche lines? You told me one um, in the morning when you were talking about the topic. Do you remember the one? Oh, not my dream, Dad. Your dream. <laughs> <laughs> that is classic, like, 80s. I love it. Love it so much. What do you mean 80s? This is also a line in the High School Musical, which I haven't seen, but I think it's famous Oh, for damn. It. I haven't seen it. Okay. Um, it sounded to me like very, I don't know, like 80s. What else? I'm trying to think of. There's also one, you know, when like uh, two characters with very obvious, like uh, who have like a sexual past, mm-hmm. when they like encounter for the first time on screen, they say, oh, you haven't changed. <laughs> or something like that. That's uh, that very heavily implied. Oh, you're still the same or you haven't changed. <laughs> I love it. I also like sort of stuff like, um, you just don't get it, do you, dad? Or like, you just don't get it, do you? It's like a way to like add exposition <laughs> to a movie, which I really love. <laughs> or, don't you die on me. Oh. That's beautiful. What's a famous scene that uses this? Because I can't think of any. Oh, I don't even know. There's a stay with me. Yeah, stay with me. Don't you die on me. I just think it's every movie. And I think it's every, like, Bollywood movie as well, which we just, like, grew up... At least I grew up watching a lot of Bollywood movies. Spider-Man did it. You know, when Spider-Man did it, I was actually touched. I'm not even going to, like, joke Oh, damn. Which which Spider-Man? There's, like, so many now. Oh, true. True. Um, The one with Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. Oh. Spoiler. Well, it's not a spoiler. Everybody knows that she fucking Mm. dies. Oh, yeah. I remember. Did I watch that with you? Yeah, we watched it together. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Yeah. What else? Oh, I also love when the bad boy does like this really cheesy line of when the villain is... I mean, I hate. I should hate this, but it's just so fucking cheesy that, you know, it's the so bad it's good. Mm-hmm. When the villain 
trying to fridge uh, like the bad boy's uh, love interest and he goes if you harm her or whatever and it's just like the funniest shit oh, in the world and no. it's so fucking Bollywood yeah. that I have to love it yeah because <laughs> the only way to evoke emotion from the bad boy is to just like fridge the actress yeah. <laughs> or the, the leading lady yeah yeah that's so true like the more I think about it and I, t- I talked about this with you in the morning as well but the one which goes I can explain Rather than actually saying, well, no, this woman that I'm texting is not my secret girlfriend. She's my sister. Just saying, no, I can explain so that it gives the actress enough time to just like walk away and you have like a half an hour like exposition about (laughs) explaining this like so-called affair. Like just, I can explain. It's just so fucking annoying to me. Also, just makes you look so guilty, even if you're not. Yeah. Like, imagine you're at the scene of a crime and you're like, I can explain rather than saying, no, I'm actually the fucking security guard, bro. It's not what it looks like. <laughs> you're mistaken. Yeah. Hate that shit. Oh, yeah. Love it. Oh, also, also when like the, the leading lady has finally some sort of like a monologue and she gets cut off by the lead actor kissing her. I'm like, no, let her say oh, her no. words. Okay, let her finish. Yeah, I hate that. I hate that. I also hate when, like, <laughs> villains, like, just talk a lot rather than killing the fucking hero. Why? Why would you do that? I love it. Do you? I fucking love it. <laughs> I love the whole Moriarty sequence at the swimming pool. Are you kidding me? Where he just, like, does the whole bit. And, like, like whole comedy stand-up bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And Voldemort, when Harry's, like, in the fourth book, when he's, like, you know, just, like, talking <laughs> to his plan, like, how are you taking notes? Thanks, okay. You Good to know. This will be useful when I tell Albus Dumbledore about this shit, you know, oh. my gay friend, Albus Dumbledore. Oh, my God. <laughs> the more you think about it, the more you realize that Voldemort was just a fucking mob boss. He really like, was. There was a dining table scene, for fuck's sake. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Nagini, dinner. Love a bad... Bad oh guy God. line. Voldemort's kind of a bad guy. And the Muggle Studies teacher hanging from, uh, from like, the ceiling while they're discussing, like, who to kill and next. And Snape just watching <laughs> his colleague, just like, yeah, it's, like, painful, man. <laughs> but do you think Tom Riddle is, like, a good bad boy, Mariam? What the fuck? Not Voldemort, but, like, Tom Riddle. Come on. Come on now. He was good looking. He still had his soul. Oh, how? I don't know. He was good looking. <laughs> No, but he's a fu- he's fully a psychopath. But he's powerful and good looking. Come on, you would fall for that. I would fall for that. Powerful and good looking. What else do we need in life? No, but he he's he's like so powerful and good looking that I would be skeptical. Like I just I'm dispositioned to be skeptical of men who are good looking. That is probably super problematic. <laughs> if he could charm Horace Slughorn, I'm sure he could charm you. Don't you think? But like. Literally everybody in the fucking world can charm Horace Slughorn. What the fuck are you <laughs> That's talking true. about? You just have to be. You just need to have connections, and Horace Slughorn is going to be like. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Horace Slughorn is literally the person who name drops, you know, and just like collects people who can increase the number of names that he can drop. Yeah, and sings like like a virgin, which is like his <laughs> crowning glory as <laughs> potions professor. <laughs> 
is a reference to our Moulin Rouge episode. Oh my god. <laughs> that you should listen to. Really do. That was, that was a fun episode. We were so animated in that episode. <laughs> we really were. <laughs> so, I suppose we are now at the end. Looks like we are. So, Momina, before we wrap mm-hmm. up, just yeah. tell us why this is like a topic that is actually qualified to be one of your obsessions. I don't know. I just feel like it's one of those things where you notice it a lot and like the more you watch movies, it becomes like like a halal drinking game where you're like, ooh, the woman has gotten a makeover or ooh, the villain is still talking even though he could just kill the hero. And I just think it becomes like this fun thing to look out for and it's almost also like, I don't know, like a litmus test for good direction, good writing. Where if you don't notice these tropes or you feel like these tropes are being handled in like a smart way, that it is, it immediately makes you sort of think better of the film as a whole. Like one of my favorite movies of all time is Funny Games by Michael Haneke, who's like an Austrian director whose name I can never pronounce. But he did this great Austrian movie called Funny Games. He did like an American remake as well. And I've seen both and it's sort of like, it started the trend of these like really depressing horror movies where like the protagonists don't get away with it. So it's like a family and these like two psychopaths come in and, you know, in normal horror movies, they're going to just like escape and live, or at least the woman usually is going to escape and live. But in this movie, both of them died because that is the, that is what happens a lot of times when like robbers come into your house or like you're met with psychopaths and, that was one of the first movies where it wasn't like escapism. It was like realistic and gritty and horrible. And so that was a huge subversion of trope. And so I, I, I love that film and I love films like that, which sort of like play on real life and on, on existing tropes. And I just feel like there can't be any shadows without light. And so in the same way, there can't be any subversion of tropes without tropes. And, and so I love tropes in that sense because it makes me really notice good direction and writing when it exists. And I don't know, I think that's my answer. It just, it it throws into relief really good writing because the absence of it is what makes something interesting, if that makes sense. That is so interesting because I always think the opposite. I always Ooh. think that the mark of a good director or a writer is when they can take these tropes and make me love them, which is why I love Moulin Rouge so much. And this is something that we did talk about in that episode is that there is nothing inventive in the Moulin Rouge. It's just, it's a love story that we're very familiar with. These are characters that we're very familiar with, but they've been treated in a, in a way that I still care about them. And so that probably has something to do with either the direction or the way that the story was told. Similarly, the show that I was, that I've been referencing so much, these are all stories that we are very, very familiar with. But the way that these stories are treated, that's what tells me that this writer was actually really, really good and put a lot of thought into this. So it's really interesting that you, you know, we're actually on opposite ends of the coin. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes and to And actually, I, I do see your point. I feel like it might be harder to, it's probably easier to subvert a trope than to, you know, stay within the rigid confines of a trope and make it interesting. So I feel like what you're talking about might just require more skill and more like um, a better understanding of like context and character. Um, So yeah, that's very interesting. I'm going to have to think about that. I'm going to have to think about which tropes I feel are 
treated so inventively and interestingly that they exist but you know there's sort of like an extra layer and level of intelligence or interest on them yeah that's super interesting man for sure uh, love it i mean also what you're saying is also true <laughs> <laughs> no you no you <laughs> <laughs> okay so i guess this leads me to the final question and um so yeah this is it i feel like we need something more dramatic to accompany this question but until we have an actual budget it's not going to happen so mariam <laughs> <laughs> yes momina how do you rate my secret obsession you know what mm-hmm. i think that oh, this no. is a 10 on 10 <gasps> no <laughs> <laughs> This is 100% a 10 on 10 for me. I think so. Oh my god. <laughs> you did it. I'm right close to crying and it makes me very sad. <laughs> That's what's making me cry. <laughs> Damn. No, this is 100%. This is a very easy 10 on 10 for me. Wow, love it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Because like you know like I mentioned in the beginning of the episode like you are a film fanatic. Like mm-hmm. you are you know so much about film. I mean I really enjoyed sort of researching this and also getting to hear like your take on my research which is essentially like the premise of the show this it's the essence of the show that I researched your obsession and you sort of fill in the gaps and I feel mm. like this sort of discussion really lived up to it. Damn. So, you know, I always ex- I feel like I always experience cinema through you in some ways. Ooh. So, this is very enjoyable. <laughs> wow. You are like the serious black to my Harry Potter where you like live vicariously through me, but in cinema. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to go super into pop culture by the way. I'm going to do Mulan and Mariah Carey yeah. because I feel like that's where I'm going to get like the best marks. So this is like a like this is a race yes. for like tens now. I'm not even kidding. We've had Love a double it. whammy though. We've had two ten on ten episodes. Yes. <laughs> We're just getting too eager just to go too big for our heads. We're like you get a 10 and you get a 10 and everybody gets a 10. <laughs> you get a 10 and you get a 10. Well, can we do another K-pop episode because like I feel like I need to I need to control myself. Do, do I make every episode about K-pop and if so you need to stop me? <laughs> no, I love it. I feel like it's like the K-pop colonialism and Taylor Swift. I feel like ground us and give us our flavor. <laughs> so I love it. I wouldn't mind doing another K-pop episode though. We should do <gasps> we should do an EXO deep dive. We should do an EXO deep dive. EXO is like the perfect example of everything that is wrong and everything that is right with K-pop. They were like the sexy mysterious one, right? Or am I <laughs> Yes. Yes, they're the one. <laughs> okay. I have learned something. Okay, I'm down. Because That was really fun for me. I'm down. You have uh people with different nationalities, then you have contract disputes, you have members leaving, you have Ooh. dating scandals, you have like colorism, like it's just everything. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Let's do it. 
I'm always up for K-pop, but like if you you need to just like not play with my heart and tell me that you genuinely need this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would genuinely, and I don't mean this in an offensive way, but I would genuinely rather do K-pop than Cats. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I cannot bring myself to watch like videos of cats doing things and pretending that it's cute to me. <laughs> like. I love K-pop, so yeah. This was an EXO scream. I'm sorry, not this wasn't a cat scream. <laughs> okay, so let's definitely do EXO and then Mariah Carey. Yes, I love it. I'm like already <laughs> excited about it. <laughs> Okie dokie. I guess now we're at the end of the episode, mm-hmm. guys. Yeah, write into myfriendsecretobsession at gmail.com if you have any comments for us, if you find my voice too annoying and nasally, or, you know, anything else, please feel free to write into us. Yeah, I have, like, thick skin. I don't care. Give it. <laughs> yeah, this is a girl who grew up without sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> the horror. Anyway, see you later, guys. Stay Stay obsessed. obsessed!